How dare you eat more than you, you read your Bible? Be eating. <laughs> Welcome to the Still Christian Podcast, where we retrace our steps through evangelical culture, finding a new way forward without abandoning our faith. I'm Katie. I'm Sarah. And we're Still Christian. This week, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. And today we have a special guest, a very special longtime friend with us, Diana Groover. Hi, Diana. Hey, guys. It's really good to be with you. Diana has a master's degree in spiritual formation. She went to seminary, but she's not a priest, okay? She is a published author, Companions in the Darkness. It is a book that shares the stories and wisdom of seven people throughout church history who struggled with depression. And Diana also keeps up with a blog. You can join her email list, and she always has great wisdom to share where she's writing about everyday discipleship and everyday grace. One of the topics I feel like resonates most with me is when she talks about spiritual disciplines, and this is something she's very passionate about, which is why we invited her here today. So Diana, could you tell us a little bit about where your love and appreciation for spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation began? So when I was growing up, I would not have used the term spiritual formation. That was a a foreign term to me. But when I was in, uh, I would say the end of high school and the beginning of college, I became really passionate about discipleship and the need for people who followed Jesus to really learn and explore what it looked like to follow him and allow that to impact and um, trickle down into their everyday lives. And so um, after I had spent a year abroad, um, after my undergrad time with y'all too. Um, And I was looking into going to seminary and reading about some of the programs. Um, I read about one at Gordon-Conwell in spiritual formation. And that was one of the first times that I had been exposed to that term. And, you know, there's some debate over the relationship between spiritual formation and discipleship, which I think is mostly just semantics. Because to me, they're very related, right? The whole uh, field of spiritual formation, one of the best ways I've heard it defined is thinking about how our spirits are formed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. And that to me is what discipleship is all about. Um, So my time there uh, was a, a long time of studying the way that people throughout church history have approached this. How have they approached the way that we are formed as followers of Jesus And that's where a lot of this started for me. Yeah, I feel like the phrase spiritual formation feels very simple, like you're being formed spiritually, but also I feel like there's something I'm missing. Like there must be something people debate about it because I I don't know. I feel like it must be a a much more weighted term, but it just seems like a really like simple and good thing, right? I think so. I don't think there's much there to debate. And I find it to be a helpful one, right? Because I think the idea, I I don't think many of us would argue with the idea that we are constantly being formed as human beings, right? Everybody is by our environment, um, the things that we're engaging with, the season of life we're in, we're all being formed as, as humans just by life. And so to take some time to think very specifically about that in relation to our spiritual lives, I think is very appropriate. So maybe I'm like getting ahead of us here, but I'm thinking, you know, the whole point of this conversation is to talk about spiritual disciplines and how I would define what we're talking about and what we called spiritual disciplines was 
the things that you had to do when you were growing up as a Christian or became a Christian that were like, it was like the ingredients you needed to be a good Christian, the recipe you had to follow. And I'm thinking like spiritual formation. You're right. I think everything forms us, whether we realize it or not. There's a philosophy behind everything. We are affected by a lot of things. And so these spiritual disciplines, I'm thinking, came from the idea of like, let's be formed for God. Let's be formed in a good way. And so here's how we're going to do it. So really helpful things that I think ultimately we'll find can be unhelpful, which tends to be the theme of this podcast. Is that making sense? And is this, can we maybe talk about what some of those spiritual disciplines are that we were taught? Yeah. Can I add something quickly before we dive into that? Just that's coming to mind. So I think, and and I'm sure we'll get into this more throughout our conversation. John Ortberg talks about how basically the, it's as if we're a boat. We're not a motorboat. We're not driving on our own. We're a sailboat. And spiritual disciplines are the things that help us open up our sails to allow ourselves to catch the Mm. wind when it comes. We can't force it to happen. We're dependent on the wind, but there are things that we can do to be ready for the wind when it shows Mm. up. I find that to be extremely helpful and also very freeing, right? Because I think some of what we Mm. have experienced with our initial exposure to spiritual disciplines was more of we're a motorboat, right? And so we work, need to work really hard. There is a guaranteed result. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more um, dependent on us, a lot more on the discipline side of things and in more of a negative way. And so I think that that comes to mind, even just hearing you explain it, right? Because I think how you see spiritual disciplines, what you see them being and what you see their desired outcome to be will affect the way that you enter into this entire conversation. Yeah, and I would even add that part of the unhealth of how we learned spiritual disciplines was, Diana, you were saying like a motorboat, but I somehow intuited the message that spiritual disciplines were what I did to sort of earn the wind or to attract God to me Mm -hmm. as if there was anything I could do to to earn that. And so I think that's where a lot of these kind of got twisted. Yeah, absolutely. I love the the visual that you just brought up because I think I've always thought of it as like, it's a tricky balance because we should do these things, but we also can't take credit for our own growth and interaction with the spirit or whatever. But I, I feel like even that is like kind of missing the point. Yeah. And I, but I think for me, it becomes a little more clarifying if I think about it in terms of human relationships, right? So the three of us happen to be married to each other. Not to Not each to other. Each other. <laughs> Why did we Thank you. Like that was a perfect setup. We happen to be married. I I hate, I, the reason I said that is because I hate when the marriage example gets tossed out as if there is an assumption that everyone is right. married or would like to be. Anyway, so I think it makes a lot of sense to us to say, well, marriage does require some level of discipline right? There are some things that we do that you could maybe call disciplines, or you might use the word intentionality, right? Even though that's become a slightly overused buzzword, I think Mm. there are things that we do to try to nurture that relationship, to keep it healthy, to help it weather maybe harder seasons of life, or just the different seasons that life brings to us. But it's not as if we do those things within a healthy relationship. It's not as if we do those things to earn our spouse's approval or force them to keep loving us or anything like that, right? It's because we want that relationship to be healthy. We do it out of love. 
and out of knowing that we are loved, right? That in, it, within a healthy marriage, that's why you do those things. And I think making that a parallel with our relationship with God, right? There are things that we do that do require discipline or do require conscious effort or choice, but it's not to earn his favor. Um, it's not out of fear of his displeasure. It's out of love. And because we know we are loved. Amen. So where did it all go wrong? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Well, the first thing I think of with spiritual disciplines, especially in terms of what I was taught, is a 15 minute daily quiet time. Not even like 10 to 15. Like it's got to be 15 minutes. Where'd you get that? Does anyone that else number? have that same time limit? Only 15? That felt like, I feel like the impression I was given is like, that's the bare minimum. (laughs) Yeah. What a bad Christian you are. (laughs) I mean, listen, most of the time I lied to my mentor and said that I did it. So what's worse, (gasps) me only doing 15 minutes or pretending I did 15 minutes? I can't tell at this point. Listen, everyone has their own convictions. So honestly, I don't mean to like poke fun at this friend who told me this one time, but I remember her saying that she felt like you had to do your quiet time first thing in the morning because she read the thing about maybe Abel and the first fruits or Cain. And I don't remember one of the brothers gathering fruits and it was the first fruits were the best ones. And she was like, my first fruits are waking up early and doing quiet time, except I kind of got the feeling that like that was supposed to be my first fruits too or something. So your 15 minute daily quiet time has to be in the morning. It doesn't matter if you're diabetic, you have to do it before you eat breakfast. Anyway, I'm bringing up the example of the 15 minute daily quiet time, but I know there are things like this for both of you as well. What are some other things that were kind of drilled into you of this is what you have to do to be a good Christian or to be in good standing with God? What are the spiritual disciplines that you had to discipline yourself to do? Well, I remember feeling like it was a huge, like naughty no-no if I ate before praying. I think praying before every meal is such a great idea. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. So that's one thing that I learned as a child was pray before every meal. And another is at my church-run middle school youth group, uh, we would have speed drills, which right away, that's kind of violent language, like speed and drill. But it was about um, how quickly you could find a book of the Bible or look up a verse of the Bible. And uh, the youth group would split into different teams. And whichever team got the most point got like a Chick-fil-A gift card or something. Was Chick-fil-A around when you were in middle school? Twas. I was in North this Carolina. This story feels inauthentic. It's oh, not. Okay, <laughs> we did those, but we did not get prizes. That was like a really generous example. There was some like yeah. win. I think the win is a higher seat in heaven. It was a higher right. seat in heaven. Yes. But we would also have to go into little rooms and sit down quietly and record, report, like have a report card for exactly how many minutes we had spent at church or reading our Bible that week. And I just remember agonizing over it because I never recorded that. And so I would like, mm. I'm like, am I fudging the numbers, Lord? I don't want to say too many and I don't want to say too little. But competing for a prize and to try to get your team points is not the best incentive for spiritual disciplines. Just going to throw that out there. So that's my youth. But there's a good, you know, there's like a good meaning behind it. I think it's nice to think if people are more familiar with their Bibles, then maybe their 15 minute quiet time before they breakfast will be less frustrating because they'll know where to find some obscure book or something. You know, like I think there's a good idea behind it. There is. But I can see that the heart behind it kind of gets 
lost. Diana, didn't yeah. you do those too? Weren't they called sword drills? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. sword drills. Yes, yeah, 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 sword yeah. drills. That's what that's they call what they're called. Yes. Yep. Yep. Oh, because it's the oh, sword of the spirit. Yeah. I was thinking the word is living and active, but that's a different verse. Yeah, but it's a, a double-edged sword. And I think um, just to clarify, Sarah, because I don't know that you went into this in a lot of detail. Um, you know, I, I think we were uh, discipled in a, a similar format early on. Like that quiet time specifically mm-hmm. was reading your Bible and praying and ideally journaling. And journaling. Yep. Yeah. By yourself. Yeah. Alone. Alone. Yeah. And I think along with that, which this is probably a longer conversation for another time, but I think there was also this implicit expectation that that time was going to feel nourishing and refreshing and leave you feeling really good. And you'd walk away with some kind of very specific nugget for your day. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that if you hadn't felt it, it wasn't effective. If you didn't leave with a warm, fuzzy feeling, then you, you didn't do it right. Wrong. Yeah, exactly. So I have two things I would like to contribute here. One is I remember a leader in my spiritual world, my spiritual life, who said that he would read his Bible until he was fed. And I thought, that's a great idea. But and maybe it I think sometimes it totally, probably, totally, probably, maybe never makes sense. But that was the expectation. I very much took that upon myself. And then my expectation became that I would get that exact thing that you're saying, like this nugget of either feel good, nugget of wisdom that would get me through my day. Like it was kind of a nice idea. And maybe it was his conviction. Maybe it worked for him, but it became a burden for me. And I think it kind of twisted what my expectation should have been spending time reading my Bible. The other thing I was thinking, Diana, you might remember this. Diana and I were in a singing group together in college and we would sing, but we would also have a Bible study, I think once a week or something. And I remember one night for the Bible study, one of our peers was leading it and he gave us all a worksheet that had like an outline of a brain on it or something. And it was like, I want you to put all the things that are on your brain or how you spend your time or something And it was, you know, like doing homework because we were in college, sleeping, eating, reading my Bible, this and that and this. Then we kind of had to like divide up the percentages of where the majority of our time went. And then you're supposed to feel really guilty that reading your Bible was like 1% and eating was (laughs) – I don't know, 50%. How dare you eat more than you, you read your Bible? You eating. Man does not live on bread alone. But it wasn't explicitly said. Maybe it was. But looking back, I think I get what you were trying to do behind that. But I also think you were really just trying to make us feel guilty. And guess what? It worked. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and I actually wrote a blog post about this a few years ago. But I, my moment like that, I don't remember that. But I remember when I was in youth group. So this would have probably been um, either late middle school, early high school. We did a similar exercise, but we were supposed to add up the numbers. So add the time and figure out the proportion of the stuff that we did in spiritual activities. And this has been, you know, a bigger uh, transformation in my thinking and in my spiritual life. But just to summarize it more briefly, I think not only does that add to the guilt that you're talking about in relation to spiritual disciplines, I think it works from a fundamentally faulty view of our 
spiritual existence. And what it's giving into is this false dichotomy that says that there are some things that are spiritual and there are some things that are not. And the things that are spiritual are the things that we can explicitly put in a spiritual box, like going to church or reading my Bible or time spent set aside to prayer. And those are not bad things. But if we have a vision that our life with God is limited to those things, we are sorely lacking in in what is offered to us, right? Because it's not as if there are areas of our life that God does not touch or should not touch or does not want to touch. And so to say all that your spiritual life is measured by is how long you spend in your quiet time and what that nugget is that you pull out is neglecting the way that God might be working and shaping you in your workplace, in your playtime, in your leisure time, in your conversations around the dinner table, in the act of doing really menial menial things like scrubbing the toilets and doing laundry um, and picking up toys, which I do a lot of in this season of my life, and dishes. But I really believe that those can be areas and moments where we are being formed and we meet God and he can meet us. And so these things that we were taught to do are not bad. And I think reflecting on our priorities is not bad. But if it turns into this pie slice mentality, like God gets the whole pie. (laughs) And so it's more a question of, okay, so this is your pie. What does it look like to commit all of these things to God? Right? Right. What does it look like to see sleep as a spiritual discipline? Hmm. Because we are creatures and we need rest, right? Right. And if I read my Bible every single day for 15 minutes, but did it with the wrong um, mentality and was just like, I'm just doing this because I have to, you know, you can read something and your mind can be elsewhere. That could be far less spiritual than scrubbing the toilet. So it's really not about, not always about the actual thing that you're doing, but maybe how you're doing it or where you're heart and your mindset is. I would like to submit for evidence a song for children from a website called Mission Bible Class. And I used to work in a Christian school and I'm pretty sure I remember the children learning and singing the song. And this is just a few years ago. Again, I think there's a nice heart behind it, but let's see where it goes. Read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And then we'll skip forward. Don't read your Bible. Forget to pray. For this, it gets a little heavy metal, wow. and that's appropriate. <laughs> Forget to pray. Forget to pray. Don't read your Bible. Forget to pray. And you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. Wow. It turned into a horror movie real fast. <laughs> it's moving. <laughs> really gripping. <laughs> I hope that it haunts all of us for many more years to come. I won't be able to sleep tonight. Thank you. So it sounds like the way that we talk about spiritual disciplines actually informs our experience of those spiritual disciplines. So Sarah, I know you have a gripping story to share. Give us an example of how we talk about it. It is gripping. Thank you Mm -hmm. for appreciating that. So once upon a time, about a month ago, my husband saw a friend of his that we used to go to church with. And we haven't seen them very often, this couple. But on the drive home, he said to my husband, how's your walk, bro? And (laughs) Peterson, my husband, for those who are not familiar with him, Peterson had quite 
an interesting reaction to that because he was just like, come on, man, what are you what are you trying to say? Like, I know what you're trying to say, but just like talk to me like a normal person. And also, why are you asking me? Are you trying to judge? It was just a whole thing. Wow. And it when he got home and told me this, we had a whole long conversation about it. And this just this idea of, you know, and we've I mean, in the past, we have asked each other this as friends. And I think we still might, but maybe phrase it differently. But we also have a very specific place in each other's lives to be able to do that. Yeah. And what Peterson and I got from this comment was, I am asking to make sure that you're going to church and that you're reading your Bible. And oh, and also because you are a married man, or even if you weren't married, making sure you're not watching porn, because that is also a very hot topic, I think. And I need to make sure that you're doing all these things correctly so that I can make sure that you're still a good Christian. And again, while I mean, the guy who asked it is very sweet. You know, I don't I really don't mean anything against him. It's more just the concept of it and how pervasive I think it is. But also this concept, the terminology behind it. How's your walk? Only a Christian would know what another Christian meant by that. If you go ask a random person on the street, how's your walk? They'd be like, I mean, my legs are like a little sore, but I'm I had some water, so I'm That's doing okay. You know, like yeah. it's yeah. so <laughs> it's a nice temperature outside today. I'm having a lovely walk. Yeah. Right? right. So, yeah. It's so abstract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just asking that question outside the context of regular relationship is more like nosiness. If you're not gonna journey with someone, you probably shouldn't ask, How's your walk? Like I'm not walking with you, but how is your walk? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this whole concept of how's your walk, bro? One of the things that really bothered me about it was the terminology of it all. And it made me think of something you shared with us, Diana, about a paper that you had to write in seminary, right? That was like, get the jargon out of here. Yeah. Yeah. So this was one of the most memorable projects I had to do while I was in seminary. And what we had to do was write four short papers about hefty theological concepts. You know, I mean, one of them was in Christian speak, what we would call our testimony, right? The story of how and why and when we became a Christian. One was was something about the meaning of the cross. One was about the meaning of the resurrection. And the fourth one escapes me now. But the, the whole purpose of these was to learn how to explain these big parts of our faith in normal language, um, because the class was on discipleship and evangelism. And one of his big points was in a world and a culture that is post-Christian, we don't share the same language, right? So like you said, if you walk up to anyone else and that's not in a particular Christian subculture and say, how's your walk? They're going to have no idea what you're actually trying to talk about. And so if we throw out these big phrases or these Christianese terms, most people have no idea what we're talking about, right? Even that word testimony, there's plenty of people that would have absolutely no idea what you were talking about. So what he had us do was write these out and then find a conversation partner with someone that was not a follower of Jesus and basically ask them to help us by pointing out the stuff that made no sense to them. Wow. So kind of becoming their student in a way, right, of, of letting them teach us what makes sense, what did make sense, mm-hmm. and then relearn how to express these things. And, and maybe, honestly, for, for some of us, learn for the first time how to express some of these things in normal everyday language. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a, a really good exercise, I think. And, and that whole idea of the jargon, the idea that we have this sort of insider language code speak mm-hmm. that 
that kind of puts a boundary up and keeps people outside, right? It says we are in and you are out and you kind of have to figure out our code words and our language in order to gain access to our club, right? And that's never what the kingdom of God is supposed to be about. I think that's a perfect paradigm for the mission field. Modern Mm -hmm. missions should be based on this. Let me first learn your language. Let me unlearn my own language. And then maybe we can have a shared language in which we talk about God and neither of us are excluded. Absolutely. And I think even in terms of prayer, you mentioned kind of this insider language that once you start using the language, then you get to be on the inside. And I feel like that's how prayer tends to be too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everyone has, I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people have the phrase that they use, especially when I was a kid growing up in Christian culture. I felt like I couldn't just say, hey, God, here's what's on my mind, blah, blah, blah. It was, dear Heavenly Father, Mm -hmm. thank you for this day. There was always a very specific script to follow, particularly if you're praying out loud to let everybody else know, like, don't worry, guys, I know how to do this. Can I just say something that really drove me nuts real quick? Is when Please. people would be like, dear daddy God. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking about. <laughs> Wait, did we talk about this? Am I having intense deja vu? I don't know. Maybe we all experience this because we went to college together. <laughs> oh, daddy. Yeah. And, you know, it really makes people intimidated to pray out loud. It does. It really right? Does. I see this all the time with Bible studies I have led, with Sunday school classes I have taught. I know that there are people there that pray and value prayer, but you cannot get them to pray out loud. And a big part is because it's so intimidating because we have made it intimidating that you need to know the right language. You need to say things in a really refined, theologically accurate way, or else people are going to judge you or it's going to be less effective or I I don't know. Um, And that to me is a shame, right? Because it's a beautiful thing to pray in community Mm-hmm. And we learn how to pray by praying. Mm-hmm. But if we put up this hindrance and this barrier by portraying what correct, you know, quote unquote, prayer looks like, well, shame on us. What do you think about, what do both of you think about the term prayer warrior? Have you heard this used to describe people? 100% yes. Katie, have you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> prayer warrior, please. Move on. No. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what it means and what what you think about it. I think it means that prayer is an effective weapon against the enemy. And I completely agree. Like I've seen that in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others. But when some people get designated prayer warrior as like this special elevated title and the rest of us don't, it makes you think, oh, well, maybe their prayer has more weight with God than mine. And I'm going to ask them to pray for me instead of praying for myself, because it seems like God's more likely to listen to them than me. And I don't actually know, like, maybe that's true. That's the thing about prayer warrior that scares me a little is like, (laughs) could be true. I don't know. You know, and I have made the joke with some people in my life that I really respect and I respect how much they pray and how mm-hmm. dedicated they are to prayer as um, you know, they, ha- they have a direct line. So mm-hmm. I'll ask them to pray yes. for me because I know they have a direct line, which, you know, I don't know. I don't know anymore, right. but I will say that we all have a direct line right. mm-hmm. as followers of Jesus. Right. And so I think you're right. Have you ever heard a prayer warrior call themselves a prayer warrior? I have no. The real prayer warrior is like not going to be bragging about it, you know? 
Yep. Well, and I'm thinking about a child, having a child pray. And when I say a child, Mm -hmm. I mean like a four-year-old or something, a five-year-old who hasn't picked up on the social cues of like, this is how you're supposed to pray. But like genuinely is just talking to God from their heart. And I feel like that blesses me so much. It just like pulls at my heart. Like, wow, this person Mm -hmm. is so sincere and they care about me and they're talking to God about me. And my experience with the prayer warrior title, I'm thinking of one person in particular, although I'm sure there've been several in my life that kind of earned that title. The reason that the one person I'm thinking of earned the title of prayer warrior is because she was very expressive in her prayers and prayed Mm -hmm. out loud and really used her hands and this and that. And it was just very, a very dramatic experience. I'm not saying it wasn't sincere, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean just because you raise your hands in worship or just because you pray, quote unquote, dramatically, that doesn't indicate anything about your actual spiritual status, you know, which is also kind of a terrible phrase. Yeah. And I think... I mean, I think the there's one woman that comes to mind who mentored me when we were in college together. I know you've both met her and her husband, and I would consider her to be a prayer warrior. She's not going to, you know, yeah. toot her own horn about that. But I think part of why I respect her as someone who prays is is not because of the hand gestures. It's not because she uses all of this, you know, flowery language. It's because I know that she prays. Mm-hmm. And I know that she prays for me and I know that she believes that prayer does something. And, and that to me is like, if somebody would ever look at me and give, you know, call me the prayer warrior, that's why I would want them to to say that because I know that I am dependent on God. I know that I need him to show up and act. And I am very willing to be dependent <laughs> in mm-hmm. asking him for his help and his presence and recognizing that that he does care and he does see and he does listen. And I think that's something that she does really well and I've learned a lot from. And that I think is a lot more important than mm-hmm. using fancy language and hand gestures, right? Yeah. I mean, I think in reality, the first step to becoming a prayer warrior is actually humbling yourself before God and not having this kind of showy prayer life. Probably the best prayer warrior is like, you don't even know how much they're praying for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just have so much more to say about all of this. So let's put a pause in this conversation and stay tuned and we'll pick this up in our next episode. See you then. Hooray.